Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by OldSchoolShirts.com. Hey, check them out. You like defunct teams and leagues and T-shirt form? Well, you'll find them there, but a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Do you remember a radio station of the past or perhaps a mall that you used to go to? All kinds of great cultural and sports memories can be found at the great folks at OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now... Here's our show. Well, it is now official. No more regular season, no extended version of the playoffs, and for the first time since 1904, no World Series, Brendan. It's not pretty. Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over. He was talking about the 73 Mets. Now Yogi could say, this one's definitely over. The World Series has been played on in the midst of two world wars, in the midst of the Depression era, but now in 1994, in the midst of the greed era in Major League Baseball, no World Series, no more baseball this year. TSN's Rod Smith reports. The season was officially canceled with a press release issued by Major League Baseball, supported by the signatures of every team but two, the Baltimore Orioles and the Cincinnati Reds. Later, as a fitting symbol of how far apart the players and owners are, Bud Selig and Donald Fear held news conferences in two separate cities, each reminding us of the reason there will be no World Series, the salary cap. Like a lot of things in life, you um, anticipate something and fear that it's coming hope that it isn't and when the day uh, is here uh, there's an incredible amount of sadness there appeared to be no urgency no desire to go to any extraordinary lengths to find an agreement every reason to believe given the calmness with which this announcement was preceded that this was something the owners had long since weeks if not months ago come to accept as necessary we just can't continue to do business as usual um i i'm all fascinated by the still portrayal of the greedy owners versus the greedy players that's not what this was about and that's not what this is about. Now that we know the season is over, there are many questions concerning baseball's future. The owner's willingness to suffer the loss of the playoffs rewards them with the greater leverage for next year. They may unilaterally invoke the salary cap and use replacement players while trying to break the union. The players, meanwhile, are considering various legal challenges in response. The first is next week in Washington, when a congressional hearing begins to examine baseball's longtime exemption from U.S. antitrust law. Removing that exemption means owners could not legally impose a cap unilaterally. Fundamentally, it seems to me, what the clubs want to do is they want to say, we are the only employers and we can make up all the rules we want to about how and when people can look for jobs in this profession. And since we're immunized under the antitrust laws, uh, you have to take it. I know the short-term pain is, is intense, but I'll say what I've said to many of you, uh, either in independently or, or collectively. If this can serve as the impetus to constructing a long-range solution that solves the very terrible economic problems that we have, and stops the social and economic problems that would have occurred in many places if we don't come to that solution, then this, and maybe there will be some good that will come from that. 
Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, what's going on? It's your pal, Tim Hanlon. Welcome, welcome, and welcome to Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us. We always appreciate you going out of your way. Uh, to stream us, to download us, to do whatever it is uh, to ingest uh, each week's proceedings. Perhaps if you're new around here, maybe you heard us on the morning show with Bill and Joe on the Compound Media Network online there and streaming and YouTube and all that stuff. Uh, Welcome to you. And uh, if you're a repeat listener, well, of course, you're always encouraged to uh, make yourselves at home. And this week, uh, it's back to baseball and why not? Playoffs are basically here now. We're going to go back to a time when the playoffs actually were hugely in jeopardy. As a matter of fact, they were so much in jeopardy, they didn't happen. It's because of the 1994 and creeped into 1995 Major League Baseball strike. And it was really the first time in many, many, many years uh, the uh, contentions or contentiousness between players and owners, uh, by the way, never fully solved and probably never will be, um, literally bled into the heart of the season, including the playoffs, and yes, the elimination or the non-playing of the World Series. And uh, Bob Cottrell is here, former uh, professor at Cal State Chico, a lot of uh, writings in in, in history and whatnot. And his uh, new book is called The Year Without a World Series, Major League Baseball and the Road to the 1994 Players' Strike. And uh, it's some really interesting uh, issues uh, that we discover we go deep into, and I think you're going to really learn a lot from um, uh, this conversation. You know, if you're not a huge baseball fan or, or you're somewhat cognizant of uh, of baseball, sort of a, a long and, and uh, in some cases torturous history, um, many work stoppages around the 1970s and 80s uh, blended into the 1990s, and even a lockout, which we just experienced at the uh, – uh, in the, the uh, 21, 22 sort of off season strikes and lockouts and all that kind of stuff. And there, there has been a lot of uh, conjecture over the many, many decades about, uh, you know, who sort of has uh, the upper hand in these kinds of things. I, I think it's a different dynamic, especially now when we've got private equity and all kinds of other entities and, and uh, uh, minor league baseball now being uh, concentrated uh, and, and under the thumb more of major league baseball, you know, things like, um, collective bargaining, things like accusations of collusion by the owners. Uh, I think uh, the the uh, players' um, uh, opportunities, uh, getting paid uh, a decent wage, a living wage, uh, when they're playing in the minors. Um, and frankly, one of the, the greatest issues that still is uh, kind of sort of hanging out there, and you wonder 100 years later, uh, is the exemption to the Sherman Antitrust Act. That in 1922, the Supreme Court voted unanimously to grant the sport of baseball. They treated baseball or they considered baseball, the exhibition of baseball games, as not interstate commerce, which uh, antitrust rules can oversee federally, but uh, as a state specific or state only um, kind of activity. And, you know, I I, I think that the modern fan would kind of look at that kind of and laugh at it on its face. But frankly, a lot of people have been, um, uh, shall we say, afraid to kind of revisit this issue. 
Um, and those that have touched on it over the various decades have uh, kind of bent towards uh, precedence. Um, baseball, professional baseball, Major League Baseball is the only major sport in this country that uh, enjoys this Sherman Antitrust Act exemption. And I, I don't know, you tell me if uh, baseball should be unique and different in uh, being shielded, shall we say, from uh, more direct competition, uh, as we've seen in all these other sports, in football and in uh, and and basketball and all kinds of other uh, sort of uh, things, and and I, I don't know. It's it's a very interesting concept uh, that uh, we get into uh, with Bob, as well as obviously what led up to uh, this particular work stoppage. And as you heard in that clip there, that's from uh, TSN. That was the uh, that is uh, the that offshoot of ESPN that uh, lives and breathes up above the border in Canada. And that evening was uh what was it i think it was august the 12th the evening of august 12th 1994 and you heard specifically just how far apart these sides were and they didn't come together until way into uh, uh the preseason of the following uh year 1995 but lots of things were going on in baseball that year uh and uh, lots of what if scenarios we get into that with bob in in, in a couple of minutes i mean the montreal expo is probably being prime among them arguably the expos probably were enjoying their best season ever and we're very well primed for potentially winning it all uh, that year. And uh, that, of course, was uh, completely eliminated by the uh, by the work stoppage. The Colorado Rockies were still playing at Mile High Stadium after having just uh, been uh, recently added to Major League Baseball. And they were set to shatter their own attendance record that they had set the year before. I think they were approaching three and a half million fans uh, no, that, I'm sorry, four and a half million fans, uh, I, that, which is an insane amount of uh, amount of people. I mean, there were a lot of a lot of players that were uh, onto some uh, uh, pretty uh, darn good stats um, and, uh, you know, saw, uh, for example, somebody like Matt Williams of the San Francisco Giants. He was on pace to possibly beat Roger Maris's single season home run record at the time. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. The game was going on all cylinders and there was a lot of excitement on a lot of different levels and all of that went kaput because of this strike and that is the topic uh, du jour or of the week if you will uh, depending on how you listen and ingest the show with our guest this week bob cottrell and uh, the discussion uh, and the investigation into the 1994 into 1995 players strike uh, in major league uh, baseball the book is available now it came out uh, in I think it came out uh, about two or three weeks ago. It is published by McFarland. And again, it is called The Year Without a World Series, Major League Baseball and the Road to the 1994 Players Strike. And of course, uh, you can get that uh, wherever good books are found. There's a Kindle version as well if you go on Amazon. Uh, but we, of course, appreciate if you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 319. Ooh. And uh, you will find a convenient link or two or three uh, to purchase uh, environments, uh, most of them being Amazon. And we will get a shekel or two, uh, more more often a solo shekel uh, than two. But OK, something, a little bit of a tip in the tip jar for us to refer you to said purchase. And we appreciate that uh, to no end. All right. Uh, our appreciation extends now into your continued listenership. Thank you so much. Uh, as we get into our chat now, let's waste no more time. Here is our conversation we had with Bob Cottrell 
And uh, let's talk baseball and uh, this uh, nasty strike. Uh, Please, as always, enjoy. Tell me and our audience uh, your adjunct into this particular story, because you're you're a you're a professor, teacher by trade, correct? Yes, longtime history professor, actually a professor of history and American studies uh, in Northern California. I retired about three years ago, four years ago now. Um, but I taught at my home institution, which is California State Chico, um, for 35 years. And then I had done a fair amount of teaching before that. So I altogether over 40 years in the classroom. And um, one of my areas of interest and expertise was popular culture, create a class on that. And so it naturally had some sections covering baseball. Um, I created a course on baseball. If I'm remembering correctly, I think I taught it at both the undergrad and the grad level. Um, But certainly in a small seminar setting. And um, I've been a baseball fan from as far back as I can recall. Um, I remember watching it and, you know, when I was growing up in the fifties and the sixties and, you know, playing ball and, um, I kept stats. I could recall virtually any number related to the game, you know, historically or presently, for the longest period of time, I can still remember a good bit of that. Anyway, I um, wrote, have written uh, some other works on baseball. I did a um, a book uh, on the 1920 season with a focus on four key figures the idea was that it would be a collected biography. And the the main emphasis was the 1919 World Series. So there's this link between that and this more recent project covering the 94 World Series. And the 1919 series, of course, is the one between the Chicago White Sox and the Cincinnati Reds, in which the White Sox were purported to have thrown the series. That was the team with Shoeless Joe Jackson and seven other players who were later tagged as the Black Sox. And my focus was on one of the Black Sox, Buck Weaver, whom I came to view as pretty much an innocent. And the other three figures were Babe Ruth. 1919 was the year that he began to play in the outfield full-time instead of pitching in an Otani kind of fashion. And then 1920 is a year that I covered in depth because that's when the scandals, revelations came out. And that's the year that um, 
the Sox were doing quite well, vying with the Indians and the Yankees for the pennant, and Weaver was having uh, a career year, and Babe Ruth set all kinds of records. That was when he broke his previous mark of 29 home runs set in 1919 and hit 54. It was also the year that as the scandal began to unfold, there's a decision by major league owners to turn to Judge Landis, who was a federal judge, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. And the fourth figure in the mix is Rube Foster, who had been a great blackball pitcher and who was the founder, effectively, of the Negro National League in also in 1920. And what I did was I focused on those four, and then I talked about the dearth of attention, interestingly enough, to Negro League players and the poxity of those who'd entered the Hall of Fame at that point. Uh, that's certainly changed between then and now. That book came out in '01. So I had those two books, and then in the ensuing decade, I wrote a dual biography on Hank Greenberg and Jackie Robinson, focusing on race and anti-Semitism. Um, and then another decade passed before I opted to do this project on the 1994 World Series. And, you know, my, my interest in it was multifold. Um, the season was phenomenal. There were all kinds of batting marks in particular that seemed to be imperiled as it began. Um, Paul Neal, O'Neill of the Yankees, and then later Tony Gwynn of the Padres. They were both flirting with 400, and that's the season that when it became aborted, Gwynn actually ended up just a few hits shy of 400, batting 394, the highest mark since Ted Williams in 41 with 406. Also, uh, there were other players who were like Frank Thomas of the White Sox, who seemed to be on a path for a period to break the uh, walks record, which was then held by Babe Ruth, and for a brief period, Joe Carter and some others were threatening Hack Wilson's RBI mark. But most of all, it was the year that it looked like Babe Ruth's 60 home run record in 1927, and then Roger Maris's 34 years later of 61, both seemed to be really endangered. And I kind of I go after looking at a bunch of labor conflicts, which we can talk about in a, in a bit. Um, I talk about the 94 season in some depth. I go month to month. And um, in the first stages, it looked like Ken Griffey Jr. was going to be the one to set a new record quite possibly, but then Matt Williams of the Giants and Frank Thomas and Albert Bell of the Indians 
uh, now called the Guardians, um, Jeff Bagwell of the Astros, and Barry, after having a very rough stretch because of a lot of um, physical ailments, began to come on strong, and it looked like he might end up being the one to set the new record. But all of that became stillborn because in early August, uh, Bud Selig, who was the acting commissioner, who was the owner of the Brewers, and who is, for me, the nemesis, (laughs) and there's more than one of those, um, called a halt to the playing of that season. Um, a little bit more than a month later, he called a halt to it altogether, and that included the, the calling off of the what were going to be expanded playoffs, expanded round of playoffs, culminating in the World Series. And the World Series was not played which was the first time since the 1904 season when John McGraw, the manager of the Giants, New York Giants at that time, and the John Bush, Bush refused to play the American League winners because they saw the American League as being Bush. And this was despite the fact that it was actually the Red Sox and it was they who had won the previous year's World Series, beating the heavily favored Pirates. So the book starts off looking at, after the prefatory information, it starts off looking at the called-off World Series, the never-played World Series of 1904. And then I talk about all these labor conflicts going back even further 1870s, 1880s, and the efforts by players to create unions or federations or even new leagues, and all of those would take place. All that stuff, yeah. Absolutely. And, And I talk about all those in brief, but I talk about them. And then I lay that series of conflicts out from the last quarter of the 19th century through the 1940s into the 1950s. And in that process, I'm, I'm talking about a series of pretty remarkable figures, really heroic in nature, and they're not all well-recalled or well-remembered. You know, you were saying that you often like to focus on that very matter. And you've got incredible stars like John Montgomery Ward, who was a legal student at Columbia, but he was also a star player with the old New York Giants. And he was eventually a manager and he was a uh, league official. Um, but he helps to create the Players League. And so it did well, but it was tough to compete with the then-existing National League and the American Association, which was another federation. Um, 
so I, I talk about that. I talk about some early developments in the um, in the, with the Federal League, the early part of the 19th century, um, a very short-lived endeavor in the 1920s. Um, then Robert Murphy, who is again another heroic figure. He was a Harvard-educated lawyer, and he tried to create a, a players' union immediately after World War II. That didn't succeed, but it did lay the framework for some improvements for the players involving a minimum salary, involving what's called Murphy money at the time. Um, meaning money that they would receive, the players would receive during spring training. And then I talk about the beginning stages of the Major League Players um, Association. Um, so you've got these incredible star performers themselves, like Ralph Kiner, seven-time consecutive home run champion with the Pirates, later with the Cubs, Allie Reynolds, who had gone over from the Indians to the Yankees when the Yankees were winning pennant after pennant at World Series after World Series, and he was one of their three, four aces. But they, too, became the co-leaders of kind of a pre-union, I guess would be the best way to call it. Eventually, they're replaced by another stellar pitcher who's time on the mound was waning Bob Feller, the great Cleveland Indian star, who was also a hero in another capacity, serving in literal combat as, as few did during, few soldiers, few uh, ballplayers did during World War II, but Feller did. And, and then the stage is set for a period of about a couple decades when that major league players association is not really doing well and the minimum salary is just barely moving from i think it went from 6000 to 7000 but that was over a very extended period of time until the decision is made and it was a controversial decision to hire Marvin Miller and Miller was not an attorney, but he knew labor law. He was an economist, a union economist. With the U he worked with the UAW, and he had a, an interesting past. Which, if the owners had dug more deeply, we probably wouldn't know the name Marvin Miller because he was certainly part of the American left, and that was. You know, we're coming out of the Cold War and the Red Scare. Where we're, actually, the U.S. was still enmeshed in the Cold War, but the Red Scare, the McCarthyite phase of it, had been so virulent. But McCarthy was clearly a man of the left, but that was not really featured as stories were spun about him. Instead, there was concern that he was gonna, going to create a union, a real union, and you know what? That's exactly what Marvin Miller did. So he becomes another one of these 
in my estimation, truly heroic figures. Well, you know, it's also it's also interesting that your focus uh, of this book is on um, uh, the 94 season or the 94, 95 strike, because um, it, it almost in retrospect, I, the most recent lockout notwithstanding right. is it almost feels, you know, once you understand sort of the full story and the background and then the lead up to it, uh, almost uh, kind of like the the strike to end all strikes, right? Which is what they said about World War One. You know, they, right? Of course, another world war came. You know, a de- decade plus later. But it, it's interesting to, and I think it's lost on a lot of modern day fans, right? Because you know, history is can be obtuse and kind of you know you got to learn and you got to read and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you're talking about a period of time when Marvin Miller and the, the, the forming of a union and all that kind of stuff, right? You're talking about a, a, a chaotic period of time starting arguably in the early 70s that, you know, you had a, a number of strikes, a couple of lockouts, right? I mean, from 72 Absolutely. to 1990, you had no, no fewer than six, I think it was seven different major defined work stoppages. Call it a strike, right. call it right. a lockout, right? And this right. strike almost felt like an explosion of stuff that had been building up during that period of time. Um, But, you know, I I don't want to derail you. No, I think I think you you're putting it very succinctly and very well. And I think, you know, that is one reason why I did this lengthy prelude, you know, uh, laying out the historical foundation of the antipathy the antagonism between labor and management. And it was, it was really virulent. And labor was seeking a bit of dignity. Labor, I'm talking about the ballplayers, the laborers. And they didn't view themselves in that light, but Miller began to shape their thinking and he wasn't an autocrat. He helped them to educate themselves. He helped to educate them. Uh, there's, a, there's a passage in my book uh, from Tim McCarver, who was the longtime Philly, Cardinal then Philly catcher and then later a, a broadcaster and um, very smart fellow. And um, he he talked about what um, the way that Miller helped to bring the players along, and he did that, you know, from '66 until the early '80s when he stepped aside for Don Fuhr, who was an attorney and who was mentored by Miller, although perhaps not as much as he might have been. Uh, so Miller's at the helm for like a decade and a half. And what you said is is exactly the case. That's a period of tremendous tumult uh, in American history, period, in world history, but certainly regarding the baseball diamond. And interestingly enough, and I probably didn't highlight this as literally as I might have, it's there, but it's maybe more implicit at times, this is the same period when labor, which reached this pinnacle, organized labor in the United States, 
reached this pinnacle in the 1950s when you had 30 plus percent of the workforce unionized, labor began to descend from that point. And in the very period when that descent is taking place, that's precisely when the baseball union becomes the most potent one in the country, perhaps in the world. Some some refer to it as such. And it certainly under Miller and then under Freer and those who followed him were fair, probably a better way to pronounce his name. Um, it's undefeated. It sort of has this scheme where it wins battle after battle and management is constantly trying to defeat or to protect its image from having lost fight after fight, contest after contest. And Miller is implored by management at different points, you know, give us something, you know, and Miller was determined to give the players what he felt they deserved. They were these incredibly skilled athletes. They were performing at the highest level, the highest stage imaginable for their craft, their profession, their trade. And he felt that, you know, this long history in which players had been exploited needed to come to an end. And exploited they were even though there were a few who were really highly paid in comparison to other, you know, American workers. But even the best of the best came up against it. It meaning caps that the owners had devised, uh, ceilings which they established, ceilings which they tried to enforce on Marvin Miller and his union. And Miller and the union would have none of that. Um, They wanted a minimum salary and a decent one, but they weren't going to accept a maximum salary. And that was a big part of the the fight, the struggle leading up to 94 to the uh, eventual cancellation of the last of the season from early August onward into into the spring training portion of 1995 and threatening and in threatening the 95 season and actually shortening it too yeah, well let me let me get ask that question though so I, just from a timing and logistics perspective why uh in, in your estimation why did it why, why did the uh the ownership proposal um from Ravitch and, and, and friends not come until right. June of 94 when the season was well underway. Was there, was there effectively a, a belief of good faith on both sides or was it just just procedurally taking so long to, to kind of get into like paperwork and, and approval process? I think to be honest, I mean, this is my reflection about all of this. I think that, the owners didn't want to give in an inch, nary a bet. They wanted to push things as far as they could. They wanted, and some of them, some of them um, were ready to cancel the season, 
Some of them talked about the need to do that for a year, for two years. Some had been speaking in that fashion for a considerable period of time. I mean, the uh, Angels owner, Gene Autry, the old cowboy actor, singer, um, he was ready to support such a approach way back when. And that kind of mindset held on among a portion of the owners. I'm not saying that every owner was desirous of, you know, having this war eventuate, but enough of them were that eventually it it did take place. And I think they they thought all along that the union at some point would have a, a breaking point, that it would have to cave in, it would have to give in, it, you know, whether it was a matter of arbitration or free agency or salaries. I mean, it was a combination of those depending on, you know, what point you're indicating precisely. But in in one sense, I think you're, you're right as well about the fact that 94 was the culmination of decades or, you know, scores of years of turbulence pitting the players against the owners. And, and something to remember, too, is that until Marvin Miller, until the first collective bargaining, bargaining agreement was signed, and it wasn't signed until 68, players basically lost all the time. And, you know, Joe DiMaggio, um, when he was at the top of his game in the late 30s, having just joined the Yankees in 36, he won spring training. He sat out and he, he was demanding a considerable raise. And um, the Yankee owner said that, you know, the team would proceed without him. And baseball would continue. And Joe DiMaggio, the great <laughs> Joe DiMaggio, had the fault. And um, there were, as I was indicating earlier, there were a few players who were exceedingly well paid, but even they were probably underpaid. Um, 66, the year that Miller became the effective head of the union. It's also the year when Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale staged their dual boycott, if you want to call it that. And what they did was they paired up and they demanded, uh, they were calling for a three-year million-dollar contract for the two of them. And the Los Angeles Dodgers, who were the defending world champions at the time, um, were distressed, infuriated. Uh, eventually, Drysdale got 110000 for one year, and Sandy got 125, which put him at a par with Willie Mays at the very top of the salary structure. And that was the very same time period of that spring training 
when Marvin Miller was going to the training camps, uh, speaking to the ball players, soliciting support for his appointment as as their re- chief representative. Um, and again, it, you know, Miller is the one who lays matters out all the way for uh, the union up until the eighties. And then my, my, my feeling is well past that point. In effect. All right. What's this old school shirts.com. Fantastic. You've heard me talk on and on and on about the great folks and the great wares at OldSchoolShirts.com. Like the name implies, it's old school and it's shirts, and they put them together, see, into what they call OldSchoolShirts.com. It's like the name implies, but of course, we love them primarily uh, for their sports wear. You name the league of the past, you name the team of the past, the chances are huge that they're going to have more than one shirt and different color schemes for things that you may remember from the United Football League or the major indoor soccer league or various flavors of the original XFLs, plural, or the Federal League, perhaps, or maybe World Team Tennis, or maybe it was the North American Soccer League and on and on and on. But hey, it's not just sports. It's also great cultural touchstones and memories from the past. How about the officially licensed Evil Knievel connection? Connection? How about collection? Yeah, that's what he's trying to say. Uh, Various colleges. How about dead malls of the past? Ice cream parlors, maybe even radio stations that you might remember. Hey, even there's a latest edition of the old, now old, Aloha Stadium commemorative shirt. All that kind of stuff and more. You will find at least a handful of shirts that you will just transport you back into your past and you will amaze and impress your friends at the same time. It's oldschoolshirts.com. And we got a promo code for you, of course. Let's save you some dough while you go there. And it's uh, promo code is good seats. Good seats. That's the promo code at oldschoolshirts.com. Promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. Hey, P.F. Wilson and your friends at oldschoolshirts.com, thank you for your sponsorship of the show. And now, back to our conversation. It's amazing in hindsight that uh, that the that this level of discord uh, would be allowed to to bleed into the beginning of the season and and it was there throughout the entirety sure of the season I mean it was it was threatening yeah not not behind closed the national pastime in the very period when you were having this truly remarkable season. I mean, you know, we think of 98, we think of steroids and, you know, the baseball home run record being sullied or not, depending on one's perspective. Well, you know, 94 is is when, if not Ruth and Maris's records, then certainly Hack Wilson, who had hit 56 homers with the Cubs back in 1930, that record would have been obliterated. There's, no, there's, there's almost no doubt that that was the case. 
Barry would have done it. Matt Williams would have done it. Uh, whether they would have gone on to hit 60, you know, who knows? Uh, very likely that could have happened. But that was a really remarkable accomplishment. And one thing that I'm, I'm Tim, that I'm, I'm struck by or was struck by when I was doing the research for this book um, I was going back and I was reading, you know, article after article, essay after essay, column after column. And there's such a, an innocence in those writings. There's such a celebratory quality. Um, you know, I, I have a chapter on Barry Bonds and I think the title is the greatest player in the game. And, and, this is well before 2001 and 73 homers and whether Barry did or didn't do whatever. Um, he was universally acclaimed, you know, by 91, certainly 92, 93, 94 as the greatest player in the game. And that continued for several years thereafter. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to do was to, um, talk about, you know, what someone like Barry represented and um, put that up against what some like Selig in particular did in my, in my estimation to the game. And that was they broke the hearts of fans <laughs> across the nation. They um, hurt their own attendance levels for some time thereafter. It wasn't, you know, it was the 98 season, which people like to forget with McGuire and Sosa going after the home run mark that helped to bring fans back to baseball stadiums. I mean, they were coming back, but they came back in droves, and they came back in droves because of the home run record chase that was taking place. And there's this um, focus that I have, a, a couple of other foci uh, throughout the, the book, but more towards the end, on what players did, didn't do, what management did, didn't do. I'm talking about substances. And so I, I talk about uh, the fact that players, you know, for long stretches of time, in fact, throughout the whole of uh, professional baseball, players have used substances. You know, there are far too many succumb to alcoholism, but there were pills of all sorts. Speed was kind of ever present. And and that was that included its usage by ball players who were considered sacrosanct. Uh the Hank Aarons of the world and you know the Mike Schmitz and others. Um Schmidt has copped to that. And you 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 have um someone like Mickey Mantle in the same year, 94, coming out with, in the midst of all his medical 
afflictions coming out with confessions about his terrible addiction to alcohol. Uh, there was that remarkable article in the um, in Sports Illustrated, and there's the photographic image of Mickey and Mickey at, I guess, what would he have been then, 60, young, early 60s, versus that, you know, the blonde behemoth back in the 50s and even the early 60s. And, um, and I talk about, you know, what drugs did to various players and teams. So I talk about Mickey and I talk about Eddie Matthews, who was my old hero from when I was growing up. And the, they were the two who were considered the most likely to break the home run record, single season and career-wise both. And neither one came close. Um, Mickey came closer with the single season efforts, um, hitting 50, what did he hit, 52 and 56 and 54 and 61. uh, Eddie only hit 47 and 53. That was his high mark. But you had other players in the 70s and 80s who were, you know, deep diving into cocaine and other drugs and you had teams like the pirates and the cardinals and the um kansas city uh ball club uh the royals they were all crippled wounded grievously by players star players you know falling victim to substance abuse and that was at least being facilitated in some way by by management. And I jump ahead later and, you know, I talk about who gets into the hall. A lot of these people who were key actors in 94 earlier and later, you know, managers like Cox, LaRussa, and Tory all get in easily. Bud Selig gets in easily. Bowie Kuhn gets in. And who's left out? Marvin Miller, until he's accepted into the hall posthumously. Who's left out? You know, the greatest player in the game. Uh, the greatest pitcher in the game. So this is a book, yes, that features 94 it features the record chasing, the remarkable seasons by the then Montreal Expos uh, striving for their first pennant. The Yankees, who were trying to make it back to the playoffs for the first time since the early 80s. Um, and you have all of that just you know, blotted out uh, a second World Series that wasn't. And um, the the very um, the very singular denouement in in the book is a harking back to one of the key figures in the labor struggles. Kurt Flood, the great former St. Louis 
center fielder, a gold glover, uh, you know, fine batter, seven-time all-star. I think what was his 293 lifetime batting average, something to that effect. And and yet the Cardinals tried to push him onto the Phillies. He refused. Um, and you had that part of the labor war go on. And he went to Marvin Miller. Miller gave him support. Uh, the union was a little more reticent initially. That went all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court made a an absurd ruling delivered by Harry Blackman. It had made absurd rulings earlier in 1922 when the great Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. basically said that baseball was not a trust. It was not a monopoly. It was not involved in interstate commerce and later decisions along the way that um, agreed with that determination. Flood lost his case, but the owners were about to be defeated, and they were as arbitration took hold and the players won uh, arbitration uh, battle after battle. And despite the arbitrators being fired, as they generally would be by the owners. Uh, The owners would then proceed to engage in collusion, which also uh, got them into legal hot water. They continued to try and break down and destroy the union. The union remained strong. And you end up with, um, you know, the epical developments that take place in in '94, and really, really, um, in the scheme of things, this may not seem like much, but for baseball fans, it it was genuinely tragic, and it remains that way to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really amazing from a baseball perspective, right? Just how many things were uh, going on in 94 on the field that were uh, brought to a halt. I mean, you mentioned the Expos. Some even go to the extent of saying that it was the beginning of the end of the franchise in Montreal. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was an incredible franchise with unbelievable ballplayers. And as you get into 95, what happens? You get um, the Cy Young Award winner from the American League, David Cohn, gets dumped. And you get the uh, Expos broken apart. I mean, it, it the this small market teams, as they're called, you know, they just didn't seem able to compete, or at least that was what was being put forth by ownership. And of the small market teams, one of those was you know, the Brewers, and that was Bud Selig's home ball club. Um, Selig is, 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 is not a figure who comes across well to me in, in this story at all. And, and I don't think it's just because of the way I've written it. I think if uh, you go back and look at, again, some of the essays, some of the columnists, what they're uh, offering, and I quote liberally from a, a few of those. 
uh, sources, they are comparing him um, with some pretty villainous figures. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of I, there. Besides, yeah, I mean, I mean, even even, I mean, some interesting other asterisks, right? I mean, uh, Matt the Bat Williams, right? For the then playing for the Giants, right? Uh, he was on pace to possibly beat Roger Maris's single season record for home runs. He had forty three home runs. He he surpassed Griffey, who ended yeah. up with forty, uh, hitting a grand slam the day before everything got called off. But Williams had forty three. And that was early August. Think Griffey, about Griffey that. had 40 home runs himself, right? He, he had 40. He's, he's got a great quote, too. He, he probably sums up, maybe perhaps, and I think you probably used it in, in the book at some point. He goes, we picked a bad season to have a good year. And, and, and yeah, there, was, there, was a yeah. lot of that, there was a lot of that going on around. around. You know, it, I even look at it from, it's, you know, from an attendance perspective, right? People forget that right. the, the Rockies were still – uh, in Mile High Stadium at the time, and were able to kind of jam through, sort of in L.A. Dodgers uh, right. uh, style right. back in the '50s when they first moved out to L.A. They were on on track to to surpass their the attendance record that they had set the season before. Right. I mean, we're right. talking like 4.6 million fans, possibly. Right. A record that just you know could never, arguably. Exactly. Never I mean, attendance records were going to the roof. You're exactly correct about that. Another remarkable side. I, I guess the th the thing that's really interesting is this is, and I, I'd love to sort of maybe cul-de-sac this with sort of your your opinion about '95 and how uh, how the fans came back or or the I guess the muck and the mire that uh, everybody had to kind of walk through once this thing was settled. Um, because it didn't happen. It didn't rebound very quickly, now, did it? No. I, I think if you look at t attendance figures overall, they began to come back slowly. They come back with a vengeance in 98. But unless I'm misremembering if, unless I'm not recalling correctly, and I believe I am, uh, it wasn't until that season that, you know, attendance marks were going back to the level of, say, 94. And, and, and there's a big drop-off. I mean, I'm talking about like you go from 31,000 to 26,000. So you're talking about several thousand um, attendees per game depending on which team because as you're pointing out there there are those there were those teams that still did well certainly but overall attendance plummets well we and, also we also forget that the this the the regular season for 95 was going to start literally the day before it was uh, settled uh, they were there were going to be replacement players yes exactly and the the ball players called them scabs, so they didn't just call them replacement players. Well, of course, it's union. It's of and course as well. That's the pejorative for the union <laughs> men, women. Um, but yes, and and in the end, um, eighteen games were shorn from the season. It was shortened to one hundred and forty-four games. 
So someone like Albert Bell, who actually hit 50 home runs that year, who knows? Uh, Randy Johnson and Greg Maddox both had these incredible seasons. Um, And those were, you know, their stats were phenomenal, but they were also not what they would have been. Maddox, by the way, he he's he's another figure who's featured prominently. He had this incredible uh, two-year run. He had a much longer than that, obviously, winning four Cy Youngs consecutively. But in '94, '95, he had this um, conjoined ERA earn run average, which was. You know, it it harkened hark back to like the ERAs of you know the nineteen teens, the dead ball era, and I and I'm talking about people like um, pitchers like um, uh, Pete Alexander, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson. So not the run of the mill moundsman, um, but yeah, I mean it. It it affected it affected more than you know the '94 season. But on the other hand, you know you call off the pennant chases, so you don't have pennant winners. And like you were pointing to, the Expos never won a pennant, and the Expos, you know, were soon on their way out. The Yankees again. Maybe they'd have another pennant to add to their, you know, how many have they won? 40? And maybe they would have won the 28th World Series instead of being stuck where they are. Um, No World Series. Two times in the 20th century into the 21st with the World Series starting in 1903. Over that stretch of time, that span of time, twice the World Series called off. Not during World War One, not during World War Two, not in between during the Great Depression. Even pandemic didn't halt the World Series. Very shortened season, but the World Series got played. But McGraw and his owner basically wiped out the 1904 World Series and 90 years later, Seelig and company, and the players too. I mean, you know, they were refusing to give an inch. They left that terrible blank uh, in the record book. Talk about an an asterisk. Well, (laughs) Two two questions is to, to to round out this, and and this is you know I, obviously the book goes into greater detail and stuff, and we could probably go for hours just just on on all those details. But so I think you're kind of sort of scratching at that. In your opinion, who who's the greater blame in all this? Is it Seelig and the owners? Is it the players? A, and maybe perhaps in your in your your thoughts, was there an immediate sort of answer to that question? And maybe as time tilted the answer maybe in another way, in another direction. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like, it's like, or, or is, it a draw? I mean, <laughs> is it a draw? And they're both guilty. And they're, yeah. they're both I mean, it's like just indicated. I mean, I think the players have some blame. I mean, um, there's, they certainly might have been a, more amenable to certain propositions, but in the end, um, I come down uh, the same way I came down in '94, and I remember basically having my heart broken when all of this took place. Um, I, management, the owners, and above all else, uh, Reinsdorf of the White Sox and Selig. Um, I think they did a tremendous disservice to baseball and to baseball fans and to baseball history. And, you know, baseball is the sport more than any other that is history-focused. It's stat-oriented. And, again, the historical record is just really incomplete because of what happened from August 11th into early April of 1994 into early April of the ensuing year. Um, so no, my perspective has not altered. Um, so I, I did go into this with some preconceptions and if anything, they were just, um, reinforced it's also interesting and this leads up to my sort of last question uh, that we're having this conversation you know in in september of 2023 when literally yesterday as we're recording this um two minor league teams are are asking the supreme court to uh potentially revisit and ultimately strike down the um you know the 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 exemption the antitrust exemption uh that has hmm. existed in it, with major league baseball for decades since the 20s and um you wonder if uh and i, I largely it's obviously that the contraction uh scenario that happened a couple of years back when mlb kind of took over if you will right. minor league baseball system and and Right. And all that kind of stuff, and we and and we've we've had a number of conversations about sort of the wisdom or lack thereof of of that, uh, and the corporatization, if you will, and the and the alignment, and yeah, you know, there are positives and negatives to it, but 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 largely a lot of negatives, especially from an historical perspective. Um, one wonders though if this issue might actually bring into relief a thorough and modern revisit of the antitrust exemption. Uh, yeah. I. I where do you sort of figure that out? Because I mean, if it, it feels to me like baseball may not have much of a leg to stand on too much longer in in that regard relative to where pro sports is generally now with with the big money and 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 all of this. It, it's it's. Uh, I just I wonder how how much longer baseball can kind of um, be exclusively unique in this regard. Um, you know, that's an issue that I explore uh, throughout the book. And 
that comes up, uh, believe it or not, almost at the very beginning of organized baseball. I mean, it, uh, you know, John Montgomery Ward, whom I referred to at, at the near onset of our discussion, he is pointing to that very fact in in an age of trust and holding companies and pools and and there's grave concern on the part of labor about um, corporatization, as you put it. And um, all along, many of the efforts to unionize, to federate in some fashion the ballplayers, did point to the matter of legal protections afforded baseball management. Sure, that the reserve, the reserve clause. That didn't, that, didn't, that didn't make any sense from a an ethical, from a moral, from a legal vantage point. And, and yet they remained in place. And like I, I said before, that 1922 decision by Holmes was ludicrous. And yet it was unanimously determined. And Blackman's decision um, over a half a century later was equally absurd. So, you know, somehow the judges had this romanticized notion of the game that didn't jive with the hardball tactics that owners engaged in and that players resorted to when they could. Um, and I, I think we're at a at a different point today, perhaps, because I don't know how you feel about this, but the salaries are just so astronomical. I mean, it, it, it's one thing to, under the new agreement, the new CBA, um, I think the players will ultimately have a minimum salary of 780000 That's the minimum. But you've got, you know, Verlander and DeGrom, you know, getting these $43 million contracts for single seasons. And sometimes in their cases, there were, you know, multiple year contracts. But uh, it wasn't DeGrom, it was Scherzer, sorry, Scherzer and, and Verlander. $43 million. I mean, um, it, <laughs> it's kind of unfathomable. Uh, you know, Mickey Mantle made, what, 100000 at his peak? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there's obviously there's inflation and all that kind of stuff. But look, the, the, yeah. the, the, the idea of pro sports and big and business has never is not new. It's it's no, it's, absolutely it not. Centuries back. Right. Um, and and baseball. Absolutely. I'm among it. But I would say I, I do feel a little like old man yelling at the clouds on this one. But I, I'll stick to it because I do think there's a cyclicality. This is kind of stuff. And I. I think my my belief is that we're kind of maybe nearing peak sports right now for a number of different reasons. Some of it economic, some of it uh, low, cheap money, but the 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 entrance of private equity in particular uh, is really uh, uh, astonishing to me. 
uh, and works. would you repeat that? Sorry, repeat no, that last thing. The, the arrival of private equity investment, yes, in into pro sports uh, is absolutely, is, absolutely, uh, eyebrow raising and, and 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 alarming, and and I don't think will end well when certain issues or or macroeconomic challenges or whatever. Uh, private equity does what private equity does, and I, I'm not sure that multi-billion dollar valuations for teams um and now even creeping into college sports oh my god yes absolutely my understanding is that florida state uh may be taking a uh, soon to take a minority investment from a private equity entity so i I just the the revenues and the the migration of team sports into things like real estate development and right Right. You know, hotels and and the betting thing. I just, I, I just, there's so much that feels uh, unsupportable. Well, I'm, I'm with you on all of that. I mean, I think the uh, the opening up of and the um, highlighting of of gambling strikes me as incredibly dangerous. I mean, it's like these people don't remember the Black Sox. They don't remember Karras and. Hornig with the NFL in 1963. They don't remember the basketball scandals, CCNY in the 50s, and then the scandals in the 60s. I I mean, I I, I just, this kind of blows me away. And then as far as private equity, um, here in in California, in the the Bay Area, as as you well know, uh, the A's are jumping ship. And you know, the public is expected to pick up the bulk of the tab. I was reading about the, um, or hearing about the uh, uh, NBA uh, squad in Oklahoma City and this mammoth, terribly expensive new coliseum, whatever you want to call it, um, that's being built. There is going to be financed largely with public money. So you've got this socializing of private equity. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. Lots of what ifs uh, from that conversation, not only for the season, like the Expos and, and various records and that kind of stuff. But I think actually what ifs even still today going forward. I, I What if the Supreme Court somehow uh, gets a uh, another case uh, at some point to revisit the antitrust exemption? It doesn't seem very credible 101 years later since the original ruling, I think it was, uh, that the antitrust exemption only can apply to baseball and why so right where it's clearly not a state by state exhibition thing anymore as it was originally described and you know why it's it's an interest it's definitely interstate commerce by all uh facets matter of fact it's even international in in, in many respects right so i i don't know it uh, doesn't stand uh, uh the test of time i think for too much longer in my humble opinion and not as a, a legal scholar by any stretch of the imagination. But that's why this book is a very helpful complement uh, to your understanding of baseball's history, but also the, the uh, labor strife that uh, continues to permeate it. 
Uh, and again, Bob Cottrell's book is called The Year Without a World Series, Major League Baseball and the Road to the 1994 Players Strike. It is published by our good friends at McFarland Press or McFarland Publishing, excuse me. And uh, it is available for purchase wherever, as they say, you can find good books or digital versions. Of course, we encourage you to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode. It is numbered 319. And Bob Cottrell is the guest for said episode, which you just heard. And you will find there on the website at goodseatsstillavailable.com in that listing, a link or two or three to purchase said episode book uh, in Kindle form, paperback form, goes directly to Amazon. Uh, we get a couple of pennies, nickels, shekels of love uh, for referring you that way. We appreciate that very much. That helps keeps our lights on. Bob also gets a, a book sale too, so everybody wins. Uh, while you're there, tool around. You'll see, like I said, 318 other episodes counting, uh, all posted there for you. You can stream them. You can share them with your friends. You can kind of just uh, see some images and other uh, book links and movie links and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and of course, the best way to get this show is to subscribe or follow us in your favorite podcast feed or platform app, whatever you use to, to get apps, to get apps, to get podcasts, just find us. And then if you can, increasingly, a lot of other places now besides just Apple Podcasts, you can rate and review. And uh, we appreciate if you did so. And keep it nice, will you? You know, the fours and fives especially, very helpful. Uh, if it's less than that, just send me an email and we'll talk about it separately, okay? We appreciate that. Uh, and of course, uh, you can follow us on socials all over the place, uh, Twitter slash X. We're at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available as well. Uh, we are on threads uh, at Good Seats Still Available. And you can also send us an email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, our thanks, of course, as always, to the great Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence, uh, already reveling in the Braves postseason strengths already. And uh, they're going to be formidable this year for sure. So, uh, I'm sure Jerry is uh, sitting uh, in a very pretty position right now. Don't get too um, too uh, smug. That's all I can say. We'll see how it plays out. All right. Uh, it, until next week, thank you for listening, and we will see you. Appreciate it. Bye.